Uh, the year is 1596. And uh, William Perkins stands up in chapel at, uh, at uh, Christ's in Cambridge. And he asks the professors and students before him to turn in their Bibles to Exodus chapter 22, verse 18. Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. He then proceeds in a series of four, five, six sermons to call for the detection, prosecution, and execution of witches. Do I have your attention? Absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to talk about today. (laughs) Not going anywhere near that one. We are here to consider Puritans on meditation and prayer. Now, how many of you wish we were here to talk about Puritan political theology? (laughs) Wow, it it would be a dust-up. It really would. It is a train wreck, Puritan political theology in more ways than one. Uh, But we're going to stand on safe, solid ground and be very encouraging, very uplifting. And I trust this will be beneficial to each and every one of us in our own spiritual pilgrimage, the Puritans on meditation and prayer. Let me just read Psalm 1. I think just a tremendous place to begin. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, to begin with, this is going to be a little participatory. Are you ready? I'm going to ask you a series of questions. You must raise your hand if if you agree, if you answer in the affirmative. All right? Is God the blessed and only sovereign? Hands up. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. All right, two hands up. Is God the great sovereign who is over all, through all, and in all? You're not very good at this. Any Pentecostals among us to lead us? (laughs) Show us the way? All right, hands up. Is this, do you agree with this? Does God work all things according to the counsel of his will? Amen. Is God love? Amen. Is God faithful? Hallelujah. All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All right. Yes, yes, yes. And again, I say yes. All right. Here's another series of questions. Do not raise your hand. I really don't want to know. I I actually already know the answer to most of these questions. Do you ever struggle with selfishness? 
Has anyone here in the past week woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning, tossed and turned for three hours, just going over and over something that happened six months ago, six years ago, or anticipating every contingency and conceivable hypothetical situation that might happen six months down the road? (laughs) Anyone here struggle with impatience lately as you made your way through the airport? Tried to find your seat on the plane. Anyone here expressed a little bit of short, a short temper with their spouse earlier today? I see some of you in the past week, in the past month. Anyone here ever struggled, struggled recently with envy, lust, bitterness? All right, I am certain that most of us in this room, if not all of us, answered most of those questions in the affirmative. Okay, I submit to you, we have a problem. We have a problem. At times, it might merely be a narrow gap. At other times, it might be a wide chasm. But far too often, there is a disconnect between what we believe, what we confess, and how we actually behave. There is a gap between our creed and our conduct. That's why I'm glad you're here. And this is a problem that the Puritans speak to in unparalleled fashion, unlike anyone in the history of the church. How to close the gap between what we confess and how we live. Because you see, the Puritans, to a man, to a woman, they were convinced that there is a huge difference between confessing honey is sweet and tasting honey is sweet. And the difference is biblical meditation. So that's our theme. That's our end in view How are we going to get there? I'm going to turn it over to a 17th century English Puritan by the name of Thomas Manton. I think we have a picture of him. There he is, 1620 to 1677. One of my favorites, his works, you'll find them in 22 volumes. We could go to any number of Puritans. We could go to any number of works. I was having a conversation with Dr. Beakey earlier this morning, and I think he told me that he has found 41 treatises, Puritan treatises, on the subject of meditation. We could go to any of those. We could go to any author. I'm going to Thomas Manton because he speaks on this subject throughout is 22 volumes. He has an actual series, eight, nine sermons on the subject of meditation based on Genesis 24, 63. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. Just that one text, and in very Puritanesque fashion, Thomas Manton manages to squeeze eight sermons out of that verse on meditation. So that's my go-to text, those sermons. 
plus the entire 22 volumes I'm extracting from here and there, and we are going to hear from Thomas Manton in 45 minutes or less. And the question I am putting to him is simply this. Look, you got 45 minutes, 22 volumes, and everything you've ever said on meditation, all you've got, limited time, we need the bare bones. What is it we really need to get What do we need to grasp to understand your approach to meditation? How the Puritans thought of meditation and therefore how we today should approach this important spiritual discipline. So that's the task we've set before Thomas Manton. And basically his reply is this. I can sum it up in 11 sentences. All right. Not really, right? You, you, okay. Eleven sentences is what he's going to give us, and a brief explanatory word on each of those sentences, phrases. And I believe that if we get our minds around these eleven, we do not have everything the Puritans have to say on this subject, but we certainly have enough to lay a sturdy foundation and build upon it. All right, so you're with me? Still thinking about William Perkins and burning witches? (laughs) That ship has sailed. Here we go, number one. And these should come up on the screen as we go. Green heads, says Thomas Manton. Green heads look upon meditation as fit only for the phlegm and decay of old age. Does it need any explanation? Can we just move on to number two? Green heads. Who's he talking about? Young people. The younger generation. Those who are young. Those who are vibrant. Those who have their lives before them. Those who are all about doing. Well, they look upon meditation as fit only for the phlegm. Pleasant thought, having just finished lunch, and decay of old age. They think it is something that is the concern of those who are in the twilight of their lives and now have nothing better to do than to sit around and ponder and reflect and think upon God's word. Thomas Manton says they are dead wrong. These green heads are dead wrong. I cannot stress this enough. Meditation is not a thing of arbitrary concernment but of absolute use. Everyone meditates on something. You meditate on something. You are probably meditating on something right now, other than what I'm saying. Something's going through the mind. Here's the thing. We either meditate on Scripture or our minds drift into a world of discouraging thoughts, embittering thoughts, alluring thoughts, enticing thoughts. Such thoughts are detrimental to our spiritual well-being. Meditation is essential because it fixes our meandering minds upon a rock, the Word of God. It is not the practice of some religious elite, the cloistered monk or the analytic theologian. It is of absolute use to every believer. So there is Manton's first point. Green heads, look upon meditation as fit only for the phlegm and decay of old age. They are absolutely wrong. 
mistaken. Here's number two from Thomas Manton. Meditation is enforcing truth upon the soul. Enforcing truth upon the soul. When I speak of meditation, please understand, I am not talking about contemplation. Psalm 27, verse 4, right? One thing I desire, right? That I might dwell in the house of the Lord and, and, and gaze and inquire in his holy temple. Contemplation. That's where the word comes from. Psalm 27, 4. Contemplation. It is the idea of gazing upon God. Thomas Manton is very careful. For the most part, the Puritans are very careful. But words are fluid, aren't they? Just like they're fluid today. But Thomas Manton, he would identify three key words and differentiate between them. He would say, look... We need to acknowledge that there is such a thing as consideration. That's studying the Bible. You open the Bible, you have the commentaries, your dictionaries, and you do your exegesis, you're studying, you're considering. And there is meditation when we seek to enforce those biblical truths upon the soul. There is then thirdly contemplation, the bare gaze of the soul upon God. Thomas Manton would want us to hear that he doesn't he is no contemplative. He's not talking about contemplation. He would be, he would be no fan of Teresa de Avila and her interior castle. He would have absolutely no place in his thinking for Thomas Merton. He would have had no time for Julian of Norwich or any of the other English mystics. He would have looked down upon Dionysius the Aropagite and his celestial hierarchy and this tradition of contemplation mysticism that we have throughout the history of the church. And he said, no, when I talk of meditation, that is not what I am talking about. You see, that kind of contemplation is unmediated. That kind of contemplation is rooted in the idea that I can have a direct experience of God apart from that book, the Bible. That there is some sort of ontological kinship, fusion between my soul and God, whereby God will directly reveal himself to me, and I know him intuitively, and per, through the purgative way and the illuminative way, I will arrive at the unitive way, and I will gaze upon the glory of the Lord, an experience that transcends the mind and reason and is inexpressible, ineffable, Manton would say, that's not what I am talking about. He would want to be perfectly clear. As far as Manton and the Puritan tradition is concerned, meditation, meditation, meditation. It is the enforcement of biblical truth. It is not unmediated, an unmediated knowledge of God. It is a mediated knowledge of God that comes through this book that we are enforcing upon the soul. He would go on to say, look, neither would I confuse meditate meditation with a mere reading or studying of this book. Meditation is impossible without reading or studying, but it isn't either of them. 
When we meditate, we focus on those biblical truths which we already know, and we apply our minds to the serious and solemn improvement of those truths for practical uses and purposes. Meditation, again, this is his second point, is enforcing truth upon the soul. His third point, the third thing he has to say to us is this. We taste things better when they are chewed than when they are swallowed whole. Now remember, he's British, all right? English. When we sit down to eat a roast beef dinner with mashed potatoes, oven-roasted carrots and onions, and Yorkshire pudding. Any Scots, English? I'm singing your tune right now, aren't I? Yorkshire pudding, that just puts some of you over the top. When we sit down to enjoy a meal like this, we do not inhale it. We savor it. Similarly, when we sit down to meditate on God's Word, We take time to digest it. That is, we bring its truths to remembrance so that we consider them until they are impressed upon the heart. This is what makes our religious thoughts real, actual, sensible, practical, present. This is the beginning of practical knowledge. And so the Puritans are very careful to differentiate between two kinds of knowledge. They say, look, over here is theoretical knowledge, not to be confused with practical. Over here you have intellectual knowledge, not to be confused with inclinational. Over here you have speculative knowledge, not to be confused with sensible, the intellectual that which is merely cerebral, that which is merely grasped with the mind. The Puritans would emphasize, and they stand in Calvin's tradition here, we do not truly know anything until it grips the heart and is manifested in life. You see, this is a post-enlightenment reality and predicament we find ourselves in, whereby in Western society, knowledge is confined to what? The mind. The Puritans would not have understood that. Because true knowledge, yes, enters through the mind, but it finds a home in the affections of the heart and it manifests itself in life, primarily godliness. And this is the result of chewing, digesting, savoring the word of God. And so Manton and his fellow Puritans, they, oh, they exhort us repeatedly in their works the need to set aside time for this the need to be regular in our devotion to this. If they were alive today, I'm absolutely certain they would say to us, I don't know what that little black box is that you're carrying around with you, attached to your hip, growing out of your hand, but you really do need to let go of it once in a while. (laughs) It's scary how dependent you are on it. Put it away in a closet, in a drawer. Try forgetting about it for half a day if you can, if you're not addicted to the thing. And get alone with the Word of God and spend time before the Almighty, 
ruminating and pondering and considering and meditating upon biblical truth. Why? Because we taste things better when they are chewed than when they are swallowed whole. Here's number four from Thomas Manton. We begin with pregnant thoughts. That's a great phrase. We begin, meditation begins with pregnant thoughts. I am against a subjective reading of Scripture. We are not to read it superficially, seeking some sort of intuitive response. I am equally opposed to a rationalistic reading of Scripture. It is not a textbook. Yes, we strive to ascertain the meaning of each biblical text, but as we do the work of study, we apply our minds to sacred subjects. As I see it, these sacred Subjects include the great end of man, to glorify God and enjoy him forever, the evil of sin, the misery of the world, the vanity of the creature, the horror of death, the severity of judgment, the torment of hell, the excellencies of Christ, the privileges of the gospel, the mystery of providence, the glory of heaven, and above all else, the love of God, the blessed employment of the saints is to live in the consideration and admiration of God's wonderful love. It's very Pauline, isn't it? You think of Ephesians chapter 3. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named. That what? That according to his power, that what? That we may know, have strength to know what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which what? Ultimately, surpasses knowledge. It's a purpose clause that you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. That is not a mere intellectual knowledge of the love of God. That is an experiential knowledge of the love of God, a knowledge which actually transcends understanding. And when the Spirit of God dwells in the heart through faith and the Spirit strengthens us to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, it is then that we are filled with the fullness of God. And this all begins with pregnant thoughts and making sure that our minds are preoccupied with these great motifs and sacred subjects as they emerge in Scripture. Number five builds closely on number four. Our affections follow our apprehensions. The goal of meditation is not to fill the head with notions, but improve the heart. Our pregnant thoughts ought to give birth. This is the engagement. Of our affections. Was anyone here yesterday for the seminar on worship in the church? A handful of you. Do I dare pick one of you to come up here and explain the affections? 
We went down this road yesterday. Let me take the rest of you down this road now. Because as I explained yesterday in the seminar, this is front and center in the Puritan mindset. You cannot make any sense of John Owen, Thomas Watson, Jeremiah Burroughs, William Perkins, Richard Sibbs, John Bunyan, whoever you are reading. This basic assumption is there throughout that we function on the basis of our affections. There are two primary principal affections. You can guess what they are, love and hate. We love those things we deem to be good. goes without saying. We hate those things we deem to be bad, evil, right? And so the things we deem to be good, the things we deem to be evil, good, we love them, evil, we hate them. And at times these things, these objects, these things which are the object of our love, hatred, at times they are absent from us, and at times they are present with us. And so I have determined something to be good, I set my love upon that object. I love my wife, Allison, all right? Right now, I am absent from the object of my love. So what do I experience? What is the expression of love for an object from which I am separated absent? Desire. Longing. Saturday, I'll head home, and I'll walk through the front door, and there I will be reunited with Allison. I will be present with the object of my love. What will I now experience? Delight. So love has two expressions depending on our proximity to the object of our love, desire and delight. Conversely, there are things I hate, right? Certain foods I hate. Certain experiences I dislike. And if I have determined that something is bad and it is the object of my hate, let's just think, for example, I live currently in Texas. In Texas, they have a rattlesnake or two. I hate rattlesnakes, And so when I go out on my mountain bike and ride the trails and I perceive that out there in the trees or in the grass or behind the rocks, absent from me, there might be lurking what? A rattlesnake. I have fear, a healthy fear, lest that object of my enmity, which I deem to be bad because it is harmful to me, I have therefore hate it, therefore I fear it. If ever I were to encounter a rattlesnake, what would happen? You'd hear me screaming from wherever you live (laughs) as I experience sorrow, grief, as I am now present with the object of my hatred. Those, my friends, are the affections of the soul. They determine your life. Every decision you have ever made, every decision you've made today, every decision you will ever make is based on simply this, What have you deemed to be good? What do you deem to be evil? We move toward what we deem to be good, we love, and we move away from what we deem to be evil. We are inclined toward what we love, disinclined from what we hate. And Thomas Manton, what he is telling us is this. Meditation begins with pregnant thoughts. Meditation begins with exalted, holy thoughts of, yes, all of these sacred subjects, the horrors of hell, 
Christ's threefold office, the sovereignty of God, the brevity of life, the vanity of this world. These are pregnant thoughts. But what we are doing in meditation is we are impressing those thoughts upon the affections so that our affections are ordered accordingly so that we make choices and decisions accordingly. And so again, the goal of meditation is not to fill the head with notions, but improve the heart. Our pregnant thoughts ought to give birth. The engagement of our affections. There are two great influencing affections. Love and hate. The first serves for choice and pursuit. While the second serves for flight and avoidance. The great work of meditation is to fix these affections upon their proper objects, God and sin. Our love, desire, and delight are all acted and exercised by our thoughts so that the spiritual life is but a vain imagination unless we do frequently and often take time for serious meditation. Go back to the opening little quiz I put you through. Why is there at times this void, gap, chasm between what I confess I know is true and how I act? Because at that moment, what I know is true is not governing the affections of my heart. Something else is whereby I am acting according to that thing rather than what I know to be true concerning my God and my Savior. We meditate on God that we may love him and fear him. On sin that we may hate it. On hell that we may avoid it. And on heaven that we may pursue it. There is statement number five. Our affections follow our apprehensions. Here is number six from Thomas Manton. The Holy Spirit joins his power and efficacy with the word. And so when I affirm the temporal priority of the mind over the affections, please understand, I am not suggesting that the mind has a compulsive power over the will. The affections are dependent upon the mind for their object because they're unable to desire and choose what is unknown. However, dependence is not the same thing as determination. This means that the Holy Spirit must work directly upon the affections. That is why the psalmist prays, Incline my heart to your testimonies, O Lord. We apply ourselves to meditation while ultimately depending upon the Holy Spirit to work through it. The efficacy of God's word lies in the Spirit's assistance. Meditation, therefore, is merely the instrument by which the Holy Spirit produces all his great effects in the souls of men and women. Number seven from Thomas Manton. There are times when the soul falls into the arms of Christ. What does he mean? As we dwell upon Christ's beauty and perfection, as revealed in Scripture, our love grows stronger. When our love is heightened unto the utmost degree, 
We please ourselves in a more intimate feeling. In this condition, our soul falls into the arms of Christ and clasps about him with the arms of its own love. You will know and I and my fellow Puritans are communicating such delight because we always go to the Song of Solomon to describe it. There are times when we taste the sweetness of Christ and the soul is ravished and spiritually made drunk with the clusters of his grapes. If that makes you feel uncomfortable, you are a raving Puritan. Don't be so puritanical. (laughs) Here is number eight, moving along. The beast under the law that did not chew the cud was unclean. Figure that one out. The beast under the law that did not chew the cud was unclean. He's really reaching here. I get what he is saying. In the Mosaic Covenant, how did they distinguish, differentiate between clean, unclean animals? There were various marks. This was one of them. Animals that chewed the cud clean. Those animals that did not chew the cud unclean Manton's point is this, well, today as believers, those of us who do not chew the cud, those of us who do not meditate upon God's word, we are unclean, I guarantee it. And those of us who do meditate, we are clean. How can he say such a thing? Growth in Christ-likeness is impossible without meditation, for it is both the mother and nurse of godliness. So the two would be differentiated back in Manton's day. A woman might give birth, but it would be another woman that would nurse the child. So he's bringing these two together and he's saying, look, whether it is the creation of faith or whether it is the cultivation of faith, where it is the the creation of spiritual life or the cultivation of spiritual life, that if we are going to make any progress, any headway, In our spiritual pilgrimage, understand that meditation is both mother and nurse. I am convinced it has a transforming power in it. As the psalmist declares, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How does this work? Well, we know sin feels good, don't we? If it didn't, we wouldn't do it. On some level, in some way, however sick that might be, we think it is good, feels good. And we know sin displeases God. When we face temptation, we act upon one of those two truths. Which one? The answer is determined by which of the two is most attractive to us at that particular moment. For this reason, a large part of the duty of mortification is seeking to make sin unattractive to us. This is done through meditation. It opens the door between the mind and the affections whereby the Holy Spirit cultivates love for God, thereby making sin repugnant to us. Those who do often and seriously keep God in their thoughts will be most careful to keep his commandments. The beast under the law that did not chew the cud was unclean. Here is Thomas Manton's ninth statement. We're getting there, doing very well. Just a couple to go. Meditation is the life of all the means of grace. 
spiritual duties or the means of grace, such as reading, hearing, praying, singing, celebrating the sacraments, keeping the Sabbath, are of utmost importance. But please understand, apart from meditation, they are like a winter sun that shines but warms not. So I grew up in Ontario, the real Ontario, in Canada, (laughs) just north of Toronto. Early January, middle of the morning, you look outside that front window, just this pristine, beautiful blue sky and the sun and all its blazing glory. From all appearances, it looks like it should be 80 degrees outside. And you walk out that front door and it's minus 10, minus 15, minus 20. A blazing sun that warms not. Those are spiritual duties apart from meditation. You can hear as many sermons as you like. You can celebrate the Lord's Supper as often as you want. You can be a strict Sabbatarian if you fit that mold in here, whatever. Any spiritual duty, name it. Meditation is its life. It is the life of all means of grace. Apart from meditation, they are like a winter sun that shines but warms not. Meditation enlivens the means of grace. It makes them fruitful to our souls. That's one of the reasons I, my fellow Puritans, place so much emphasis on preparing to celebrate the Lord's Day. Preparing to receive the Lord's Supper. Preparing to hear God's Word and so on. The fruit we derive from these things is commensurate to the time we give to meditation. Here's the 10th thing Thomas Manton has for us. If you mean to keep in the fire, you must ply the bellows and blow hard. Good. So you think of blacksmiths, right? And that fire that's roaring in order to melt and soften the iron or ore, whatever the case may be, and the bellows the huge bellows to keep the intensity of that fire ablaze. Oh, when the soul's faculties are rightly governed, practice follows affection, which follows persuasion, which follows knowledge. And so I am immersed in the Word of God. And these great truths concerning God, eternity, salvation, the incarnation, Jesus Christ, these become pregnant thoughts. I am persuaded of them. They grip the affections and love is set upon God and hate is set upon sin. And this affects choice and practice and is manifested in all of life. The problem is this, because of the fall, this order is subverted. And it is not just biblical truth by means of the mind as we hear the word, read the word, memorize the word, sing the word, meditate upon the word. That is not the only influence upon our affections. Because of the fall, objects external to us strike our senses, sight, taste, touch, smell, which move our affections. And these blind the mind and lead captive the will. When senses hold sway, we lose sight. We quickly lose sight, although we believe it. Although we confess it, we quickly lose sight of God's greatness. 
We lose sight of his righteousness and loving kindness, the majesty of Christ, the beauty of grace, and the reality of eternity. These truths become mere abstractions. And as a result, our affections lose order, our mind loses focus, and our will chooses sin. We must, therefore, devote ourselves to meditation. A glance does not discover the worth of anything. And so we come not off from holy thoughts until we find profit by them, either sweet tastes and relishes of the love of God or high affections kindled towards God or strong resolutions against sin begotten in us. Here's the last comment from Thomas Manton. He's doing very well with the time allotted him. Number 11, <laughs> final statement, that which fills an ocean will fill a bucket. There is no greater object of meditation than God. Because he is above all and over all, he does not require anything outside of himself, nor does he benefit from anything outside of himself. He is his own blessedness. What are we to him? Do we have any effect upon him? Does he need us? Can a man be profitable unto God? No, but please do not miss this. Though God stands in no need of us, yet he is willing to communicate his blessedness to us and to make us happy in the enjoyment of him. And meditation is the chief means by which we enjoy him. Meditation upon his attributes as revealed in his works stirs three Radical graces. Thoughts of his power produce fear. Thoughts of his wisdom produce faith. And thoughts of his goodness produce love. Fear, faith, love. When these three radical graces are engaged in the soul, we close with God as our portion. The language of Psalm 119, verse 57. Oh, our soul must have a spiritual good. Our soul must have an immortal good. Above all else, our soul must have a satisfying good. This is God alone. And God is satisfied in himself, and there is more than enough in him to fill us. After all, that which fills an ocean will fill a bucket. All right, my friends, did you get the 11 from Thomas Manton? I think that's pretty good. 11 just pithy statements that if we wrestle with these and dive into them and take them seriously, it will accomplish two great ends. It will open a door into Puritan literature and help us really understand what makes them tick. I mean, this is front and center, absolutely pivotal to their experiential theology, their spirituality. It is everywhere in their writings. And if you are reading Puritan sermons, the likes of a Flavel or a Manton, what you are seeing is the fruit of their meditation. And you read those sermons and you're wondering, why are these so deep? How are they able to see these things and explain them this way? And then they get to these points of application, so expansive in terms of how they apply them by way of challenge and comfort and correction, and so deep as they speak the word to each one. They didn't come up with that two hours on a Saturday night. 
is meditation. It is the, what you're seeing is the fruit of their meditation upon God's word, which they are then bringing into the pulpit and in a very shepherdly, pastoral way, guiding their people into the word of God so that they might have a very real encounter with the living God. Now, there is one obvious question. We're doing well with time. One obvious question that remains. Anyone want to guess what it is? What does it look like? Well, prayer, we're going to get there. And that was an obvious question, too. What about prayer? The Puritans on meditation and prayer. We're going to get there. Another obvious question is this. What does this look like? All right, that that sounded beautiful. Eleven pithy statements. I can print them out, put them up on the fridge and stare at them. But uh, what's it doing for me? What am I supposed to do with this? It is fascinating because Manton, in his 22 volumes, never gives us a step-by-step process to follow when it comes to meditation. And I I guess that the reason he shies away from doing that is because he recognizes and acknowledges that we're all different. And he doesn't want to lay a heavy burden on our backs. He doesn't want to be guilty of legalism. He doesn't want to be be guilty of giving the impression, look, you do these seven things, and this is going to work for you. He wants to avoid that. As we read his corpus in its entirety, we can put together something of a skeletal outline, all right, that I want to give you. This is something, if this is new to you, this idea of meditation and prayer, this is something I trust you can take, you can develop, you can tweak it, you can massage it, you can do what you like with it as it would fit your particular context and needs, but at least bare bones, all right? So let me suggest, make six suggestions that I think are fairly representative of Thomas Manton's approach The approach that most Puritans would employ, I don't doubt there is a lot I am leaving out. But I think for our purposes, this is sufficient. Keep it simple. Keep it straightforward. Here we go. Number one, we approach meditation by praying for God's blessing. Pivotal. We bathe this entire spiritual discipline in prayer. Psalm 119, verse 18, open my eyes that I might behold what wonderful, beautiful things in thy law. So we pray. We pray for illumination. We pray for the Spirit of God to open our eyes. We pray very much like Paul in Ephesians 1, that we might be given a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of our God. So we come with anticipation. And as dependent children, We acknowledge our need for the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit in us. Secondly, we choose a biblical truth. I mentioned a pretty exhaustive list of sacred subjects that are front and center in Puritan thought. Meditation is not the time for you to figure out your eschatology. (laughs) Don't do it. It's not the time to start thinking about polemics, your next blog post. And how you're just going to lay into that guy and correct him. That's not the time for it. The time in meditation is not the time for figuring things out. It's not for the time for speculative theology. It is the time for taking what we already know. 
and making sure it is being enforced upon the heart and using it in a useful, practical way in our lives. And so biblical truths, again, concerning the excellencies of the Lord Jesus, that could do you right there for the rest of your life. You'll be all right. It's threefold office, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, uh, different attributes of God, eternal realities. We choose a motif. We choose a subject. It might be something that your pastor emphasized on Sunday in his sermon. Review the sermon notes and ask yourself, well, what, is a, what constitutes a pregnant thought in this sermon that I can spend some time thinking through? Use memorization, all those Awana verses or whatever club you belong to as a kid, and you have all those verses. Well, there's a time to recall those scriptures that you've known for 10, 20, 30 years. Whatever you're reading in your devotion as you read scripture, as you read through the Psalms, as you read through Ephesians, just focus on one truth, one biblical truth, one biblical motif. Use the hymn book. It's one of my favorite things to do. The old ones, the old hymns. Get those old hymns out. and Just read a stanza and just latch on to that one glorious truth that is being celebrated there. Or a good book. You grab Stephen Sharnock's The Existence and Attributes of God. Just read a page. All right? Or George Swinnick's, I think even better, The Blessed and Boundless God originally called The Incomparableness of God. It has been edited and published by RHB. It's a little blue book called The Blessed and Boundless God. I would actually encourage you to get that over Stephen Sharnick's The Existence and Attributes of God. I'm not saying it is better. I'm saying this. It's shorter. (laughs) And there's something to be said for brevity, isn't there? And very easy to understand. And you can read a two-page chapter and just latch on to that truth as Swinnick waxes eloquent concerning God who is incomparable in every conceivable way. So you have your truth, all right? And then what are you doing? You're asking questions of it. And so let's just imagine, here I am on a Monday morning, and the sermon on the previous Sunday was on James 1, and I have really gravitated to James 1, 17. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there is no variation nor shadow due to change. There's my truth. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. It's a reference to creation. He's the Father of the lights, luminaries, in whom there is no shadow due to change or variation. Unlike the earth, lots of shadows, night and day. Why? Because the heavenlies are in a constant state of flux. God is not like that. God is the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Here I am coming face to face with God's immutability. And I cannot divorce his faithfulness from his immutability. And his faithfulness as confirmed in this wonderful truth that every good and perfect gift comes from above. All right? I have my truth. And now I'm asking questions of it. And I'm simply taking the fourth question from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, Uh, What do the scriptures primarily teach? It's not complicated. They teach what we are to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So I have my truth. I have my text. Well, what does this teach me concerning God? 
that there are no processes outside of him, within him, that cause him to change. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, changeless in power, in wisdom, in life, in sovereignty, and faithful, the great I am, the one who is above all succession of time, And because he is faithful, he is truthful. This is what I am to believe concerning God. What duty does this God require of me? Well, I think he requires me to trust him. It's not complicated. I think he requires me to depend on him, to look to him, to rest in him. And so I just simply ask these questions. What does this teach me concerning God? And what duty does God therefore require of me? And then I move on. Fourthly, we examine ourselves. And I ask myself, well, what have I done? What have I been doing? Have I been trusting God? Why have I been waking up at 2 o'clock in the morning for two weeks straight, tossing and turning and worrying in an absolute anxious, apoplectic mess, thinking about everything under the sun. In light of that verse, and who God is, am I acting, living in a way that is consistent with this glorious biblical truth? And then I move on to the next question. We resolve, what will I do starting today? Just today. Each day has enough trouble of its own, right? Just for today, what will this look like? What will this mean in terms of trusting him? What will this mean for my relationship with my wife, my kids? What will this mean for my difficult relationship with that colleague or that individual at church? What will this mean when I encounter encounter frustrating circumstances throughout life and don't always get my way? What will this look like and what am I resolving to do today in light of this truth? And then I wrap it all up. And I pray for God's help, because I'm going to need it. And I simply pray, Psalm 119, verse 36, incline my heart. Incline my heart. I need the Spirit to illumine my mind. And I need the Spirit to incline my heart. And then you know what you do after that? It's the second half of the title for this seminar. You pray. Pray. Prayer is not that complicated. We've made it extremely complicated, and we've made it extremely difficult. Why? Because we've divorced it from meditation. We just parachute in, and we just think, I should be able to pray. We do that as individuals. We do that in our care groups and prayer groups. And what happens? What's supposed to be a 45-minute prayer time ends up in a 35-minute share time. (laughs) Just sharing. And we're praying for grandma's neighbor's niece. Nobody knows her name, but she's going for foot surgery. And then we're praying for this, and we're praying for this, and we're praying for this. And then it's just quickly wrapped up in 10 minutes. And that becomes our corporate prayer life, a reflection of our individual prayer life. Why? Because we've completely divorced it from meditation. Therefore, we have completely divorced prayer from the Word of God. Preachers, you would never get up on Sunday morning without studying, right? Nor should we pray without studying. You got to hear from God first. Right? What's, how does the saying go? If you want to hear from God, read the Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. Right? Somebody said that recently. It's good. I wish it were me. It wasn't me. Somebody did. You read the Bible and you meditate on it. 
And as we've worked through these steps, what do we realize as we work through these steps of meditation? I'm now able to celebrate in prayer mercy received. God's faithfulness, how he's been faithful to me throughout the generations. Every good and perfect gift that has come from above, I'm able to enumerate these gifts. And I simply enter into praise and thanksgiving, naturally flowing from the meditation. Mercy received. And I'm also now acutely aware of mercy required. Mercy needed. That formulates my confession and petition. And prayer is simply what then? Me expressing what I have determined, ascertained, celebrated, recognized, acknowledged through this season of meditation upon the word of God. They are indissolubly linked. Word, meditation, prayer. Word, meditation, prayer. And you see this as well among the Puritans that often you you hear they would preach for an hour. Sometimes they would pray 30, 40 minutes. Think that's just coming to them off the top of their head? No, that is the fruit of their meditation, the fruit of their preparation, that as they are immersed in the scriptures and as they wrestle with these two great realities, mercy received, there's praise and thanksgiving. Mercy required, there's petition and confession as it arises from the word of God itself. And from that flows then our prayer life whereby we go before our great God and we seek from him all that we need according to his word. And we praise him and give him all the glory according to his word.